Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and wow, are we going to flip it around on you today. I have with me the one and only Dr. David Berman, who listeners will know. He's done some fantastic podcasts on OB-related stuff with me. But today, Dave has convinced me to flip the script and let him sit in the host chair and interview me about podcasting. So yes, we are going to do a podcast about podcasting uh, because he read the article that uh, a good friend and colleague of mine, um, Justin Harvey, and I published in The Clinical Teacher about uh, how to podcast, how to start and do a podcast. And uh, Dave thought it'd be a good idea to to actually interview me about that. And I reluctantly agreed. So that's what we're going to do. But first, before I turn over the host mic to Dr. Berman, uh, I have some exciting announcements. So I want to announce that we have finally decided on the first ever ACRAC intern I want to first thank everyone who applied. Uh, it was really humbling to uh, get the applications and read through them, and just fantastic people having done fantastic things. I wish I could have everybody, but we're going to start small and just have one. And please uh, don't feel bad at all if you applied. Thank you, and we'll definitely keep you in mind for future opportunities. Um, but the first ACRAC intern of all time is going to be Kimia Kashkuli from Tufts School of Medicine. And Kimia, congratulations. Uh, really excited to have you come on board. Kimia is going to be doing a lot of fun stuff, uh, but she's going to start with some of the social media stuff. So look for ACRAC Podcast on Twitter, and uh, Kimia will be hoping to manage that, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter. Again, it's at ACRAC Podcast, all one word. Also going to be starting a uh, ACRAC Facebook group, so you can look for that. Join and take part in some fun discussions and other more fun stuff to come. So congratulations to Kimia. Look forward to a great year and a lot of fun, innovative stuff in ACRAC to come. All right, so that is it for the announcements. And now, Dr. Berman, the show is yours. Well, hello and welcome to ACRAC. So uh, I'm very excited to interview you. I read this piece about podcasting, and I thought it would be a little meta to talk about podcasting through a podcast. So I would love to get to hear a little more about the process of creating your podcast, the logistics behind it, and maybe some reflections on where you've been and where you think this whole big project is going. So what initially made you want to start a podcast? Was there like an initial driving spark that that was lit within you? Yeah, it's a great question, Dave. So, you know, I, as many people may know, uh, started off in emergency medicine. So I matched into emergency medicine 
And one of the things that I really enjoyed as an emergency medicine intern was listening to some of the amazing podcasts that exist in the world of emergency medicine. So the first one I was introduced to was EM Rap, which is a uh, slightly different format. It's released, it used to be, and I'm not sure if it still is, released uh, once a month as a large chunk of multi-hour information, different interviews, different uh, types of information. Um, it was really well done. And as far as I could tell, every single emergency medicine intern in the country listened to it. Uh, and Sorry, every single emergency medicine resident, not just intern. Uh, and then uh, at some point after that, um, MCRIT, uh, Scott Weingart's podcast uh, of emergency medicine critical care. And these were just such a, uh, an important part of my learning as an intern in emergency medicine. I thought uh, they were just fantastic. And so that was great. And then when I switched into anesthesia, uh, there was no analogous – thing at all. I, I was really taken aback. I kind of thought, uh, as soon as I start my anesthesia residency, I will listen to the equivalent uh, of MRAP for anesthesia, and there was no such thing. And so I, right away, when I became a resident, thought in my head, you know, this is a big gap, and I wonder if I could produce something that might help fill this. It seemed like such a stretch, though, and I had no idea how I would do it, and as a resident, didn't really have the time to do it, plus I had was having in the midst of having a couple of kids. And it didn't seem like something I, I could really pursue. There was such an activation barrier uh, for me, especially having very little tech knowledge. And I, I just was something I thought about. That was kind of the initial spark, but did not know how to pursue it. Uh, then when I became a, an attending here at Hopkins, I started to hear over the first couple years that I was attending, residents uh, kind of talk about how they wish they had some audio resources. And it reminded me that I had once thought the same thing. And that kind of pushed me as I got more involved with the residency program to think, all right, this is something I really want to try to do. And so I finally did. So when you started off, it sounds like you had an idea and somewhat of a vision for what you wanted. How did you decide on a podcast? It certainly seems like you could have done episodes on YouTube or um, done audio books or um, done something like that. How did you decide on a podcast as your medium? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think part of it is I had always enjoyed audio-only podcast-type learning myself. So, for example, I listened to some uh, pathology uh, podcasts or at least recorded pathology lectures uh, when I was studying for step one, as I think many of us did. Uh, I would go Most running. Most of us try to block that out. <laughs> I actually, the, the part of that studying that I, I enjoyed the most was this. I would go running. It was the part of my day where I wasn't stuck in a library, you know, pouring over textbooks. I would go running and I would listen to uh, those lectures on tape and found them to be some, somewhat entertaining, certainly very useful. And I actually found that I remembered the information better. Uh, than I did the stuff I was reading in textbooks, I think because I was running while I was listening to it. So I was, uh, my brain was activated, the blood was flowing. Uh, and so I really liked that. And then also, as I mentioned before, I was exposed to these emergency medicine podcasts that I really liked. I think that was part of the attraction. Uh, I knew that I wanted a format that, that would allow me to be audio only because, again, I want listeners to at least have the option of listening while working out or listening while commuting so that they can learn without having to extend their day by adding an hour to sit and read a textbook or even to sit and watch a video or a video podcast. Um, and so that's, I think, how I, I landed on podcasts. I didn't know much about it. I listened to some of them and thought it was a good format. And – from your perspective, when you were a learner, would you consider yourself more of an audio learner than a visual learner? Do you think that's where a lot of younger learners lie these days? Uh, it seems like the, the medium worked for you. Do you think it has anything to do with 
you as a learner or do you think it has to do with the medium or both? I think it's a great question. There's a lot of um, – I guess I'll say controversy out there right now about the whole learning styles idea. There was a time when I think everybody thought this was absolutely a thing and everybody had a different learning style. And so, uh, you know, some people learn better visually, audio, kinetically, et cetera. And I'm not willing to say that there's no truth to that, but there have been some um, people who have thrown that into question a little bit, some studies that have suggested that may not be true. I think that, um, some of it may come from if you listen to a really great audio resource and you compare that to a really boring in-person lecture or a really uh, you know exciting kinetic learning experience, whatever that might be, uh, versus a sitting in a lecture hall falling asleep. Uh, you know, I think most people are going to feel like they are more of a kinetic learner under those circumstances. Uh, whether there are really people who can't learn well in one way but can in another, that may well be true, but I don't think it's as widespread as we once thought. Right. And so I think putting quality resources together is important, and uh, of course people can pick and choose what they like the most. I also think that if you give people the opportunity to uh, – in today's day and age, it's just hard to find time to study. I mean if there's one thing we see with our residents, they work really, really hard – and then they go home at the end of the day and do their pre-ops. And then at some point they're supposed to study because they've got these exams they have to study for. And it's challenging. It's challenging to find that time. And by the way, of course, also they have families and children and husbands and wives and girlfriends and boyfriends. And it, they need to pay attention to all that too. It's very hard to do. And so I think for anybody, whether they think of themselves as an audio learner uh, or more of a visual learner, I think they could benefit potentially if they want from a resource that allows them to listen while they're commuting or while they're out biking or uh, you know something like that, even doing chores around the house. I think that is an advantage for everybody. And I also, as I said before, I think that the quality of the resource and hopefully people find the ACRAC podcast to, to be of some level of quality, I think uh, can really appeal to people regardless of their whether they think they're more of an audiovisual or other learner. Of course, from a kinetic standpoint, you can run while listening, and I actually think that's that's in, in many ways ideal. Well, it certainly seems like um, if you provide a quality resource that makes someone's downtime productive, it'll certainly be well received, especially by very busy learners. I would hope so. So in your article, you mentioned how you should start out by defining your niche and finding your target audience and moving from there. How much of an idea did you have about your niche and your target audience when you started? Um, and a follow-up question, who was your target audience when you started and has that changed at all over the course of this project? Yeah, so you know, I think I was spoiled in a way because I was doing this at a time when I was uh, an associate and then later program director. So I was surrounded by incredible residents asking really intuitive questions and that – made it pretty easy. I saw my target audience as my residents and I was around them all the time and hearing their questions and I able to bounce things off them. And so it was pretty easy to imagine a target audience because I kind of had them all around me. Now, I initially thought that this would be a resource that, you know, some of my residents might use. I never imagined it would really go beyond that. And I've been very surprised at how far beyond that it's gone. But I still do try to ground it in thinking about my residents who I'm so lucky to get to work with every day and what they uh, what would be useful for them. And that guides a lot of what I try to do. I've actually found over time that it's a good 
target to have because I think that what appeals to anesthesia residents actually is pretty widely appealing. It's not so advanced that medical students can't benefit from it. It's not so simple that attendings can't benefit from it or fellows. And so I think part of the reason the appeal has been pretty wide across the spectrum um, from medical students to residents to CRNAs and SRNAs to attendings and fellows and um, nurses and, uh, you know, a wide variety of, of people is because that the level we kind of target is one that is pretty accessible to everybody. That's great. Um, thinking about making a podcast, how much technical knowledge or experience did you have when you decided you wanted to get started with a project? And what was it like to actually get things started? Yeah, so technical experience, none. Um, and I would say that is definitely still my weakest link. I uh, am very um, rudimentary when it comes to the technical aspect of things. The very first, as people may remember, if they've been with us from the beginning, uh, I literally had – I didn't even know how to record uh, a podcast at first. I looked on YouTube, saw some videos, read some blogs. I think I stumbled across this website, Libsyn, and um, so it looked reasonable. I think I probably read a blog that suggested it as a reasonable site to start a podcast on. Uh, that's the website that I started with. It was felt very clunky. Now, whether that was because I – didn't know what I was doing or whether it is a clunky website. I don't know. I don't mean to put Libsyn down. It might be fantastic for those who know what they're doing. Um, but I couldn't figure out how to do much with it. I was lucky enough to have a resident at the time who helped me figure out how to do WordPress instead, which felt like a, a nicer uh, situation. Um, but I didn't know anything. And those who, uh, again, may, people may know that the fourth episode somehow, I still don't know how or why, only plays in one ear. If you try to listen to it on your headphones, it'll only play in one of your two ears. Don't know why. As far as I know, I didn't do anything different than I had done recording any other episode, but that just ended up that way. So, you know, there were some snafus due to my lack of technical expertise. Um, but I will say that the fact that I struggled so much, especially with that aspect of it, was part of why Justin and I wanted to do uh, to write this paper uh, that we published in Clinical Teacher because I think there are, uh, you know, in fact, I know because I get emails uh, from people asking if I would mind giving them some advice because they're thinking about starting a podcast. And actually, it was one of those people who had asked me for advice who I gave advice to who then uh, suggested to me, you know, I'm sure people are asking you this all the time. You should write this up. And I thought, oh, that's a great idea. Then I can refer them to the paper and, you know, just clarify if they have any questions. And so that's where this led is really trying. I brought Justin in because Justin is a lot better at the technical side of things than I am. And so we uh, we did this in a way that I think is useful if you go through the paper. And we'll certainly post a link in the show notes that um, – you know, we try to lay out, here's the basics. If you don't know what you're doing, as I did not know what I was doing when I started, here, if you go step by step, this will help you with the equipment you should get. And we try to give you options that are pretty reasonably priced if you don't want to spend a lot of money. Here's the equipment you need. Here is the software. Here are some options of kind of all-in-one websites now where you can do the recording and the website hosting and everything all in one. So we give you some of that uh, that idea. And I do think you could probably... Uh, read through this article, follow the steps, get the stuff uh, that we recommend on there. And by the way, we recommend a variety of brands. We're not getting paid by anybody for this. Um, but pick and choose and and actually start a podcast. Uh, I think you could do it with this, and that was my goal because I didn't have anything that, that kind of brought it all together concisely that way when I was starting, and I think it was a struggle because of that. So you should know, uh, listeners, that Jed and I have a couple of questions that we've written out, and I'm sitting here with my iPad, and Jed has printed them out on paper <laughs> and taken notes with a pen, which I haven't used in a long time. Uh, so when you're thinking about 
episodes that you want to record, how do you come up with topics or discussion points? Is it based on recent literature that you read or um, suggestions from the audience or uh, it seems like some of them are at least based on uh, Graham Rounds topics or speakers that we've had at our institution or is it merely word of mouth and questions that you get from residents? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, question, Dave. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to break that into the the question about how do I pick topics and then how do I kind of come up with discussion points for the topic. So for the topics themselves, um, when I the very first few episodes were literally things I had already given talks to our residents on. And so I said, I'll just make podcasts from them. I've already got – and people may notice there are slide sets that are associated with some of those early episodes. And that's because I already had them for my talks and I just posted them for people if they wanted them. Uh, and I thought that'd be useful both for our residents and anyone, for example, who came later or who didn't get to go to the lecture. Uh, so that's how I did it at first. And then since then, it's morphed little by little into a combination of a lot of requests. So uh, I get a ton of requests. And when there are multiple requests for the same thing uh, over and over, I start to think, OK, this would be a topic that obviously would be useful to a lot of people. And then uh, that's part of it. Part of it is, as you said, if we have a grand round speaker come and the topic is really interesting or the speaker is very good or both, I will often reach out to them and ask if they would be willing to do an episode. And then the other things that just, you know, I think are particularly interesting and potentially useful. So if there's something high yield uh, that comes up uh, either in uh, review for the uh, ongoing MOCA certification or something comes up on a, an exam that a resident asks about and it seems like an interesting topic or something that would be high yield for the residents, then we often do that. So that's kind of how we come up. And then I would say sometimes, uh, you know, people will actually – and it's happening more and more where people will approach me and say, hey, uh, you know, I've got a great idea for a podcast. Um, and if it seems like something useful to, uh, to my audience as, as I envision it, and if it's a person who I think has particular expertise in that area, then, you know, I try to make that happen. Uh, it is also uh, something that I've done a little bit of and I think we'll do more of looking at, you know, interesting literature and then trying to bring in the authors uh, to discuss it. So, for example, Rob Sawyer, who was the lead author on the Stop It trial, talking about antibiotics in the ICU, uh, was really great to interview him and hear his thoughts about the trial he did. And I also think it's really useful for listeners who may be med students or residents right now and think, you know, I would like to be a researcher someday. I'd like to have a article published in the New England Journal, be the lead author on a major multinational RCT, you know, to hear from someone who is doing that, uh, who can say, hey, this is how I got where I am. So I think that's a pretty neat thing. So that's how I come up with the episodes. And then discussion points, I think part of the reason that the level is useful is that I try to ask myself, let me take myself back as best as I can and imagine I didn't know anything about this. Now, there are some topics I know very little about, so that is useful, uh, and others that I know quite a lot about. But I try to imagine if I didn't know this, what kind of questions would I have? And to start there very basically to say, you know, what is this thing that we're talking about, right? Um, and when I listen to other podcasts, uh, some of the time – uh, when I struggle, it's because I th uh, to understand. So, uh, for example, I was listening the other day to the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Right, this is a discussion of culture. They discuss all different kinds of of cultural to dos and ongoing things. And uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but let's just say it was something like opera. Right. Well, I don't really know anything about opera, but they instead of starting at a okay, you know, to the they had some guest come in, and instead of saying, you know, for imagine. You have some listeners here who know nothing about opera. What you know? Start at the beginning. Tell us 
what is opera? How did it come about? How is it different than uh, a musical theater, right? Is it just in a different language or is there something about it, right? So instead of starting at the basics, they jumped into the kind of, you know, high-end discussion of opera, which I'm sure was super enjoyable to people who know opera, but I had a hard time following it. So I try to not do that. I try to really uh, start at least basic, and then maybe we get into some things that are a little more advanced, but my hope is that it's, it's done in a way that can maintain the attention of and be useful for a wide range of people. And so uh, it's that mindset that I use to kind of come up with the questions, what would I want to know if I didn't know this, and then a little bit of what would I want to know more of if I did know this, and I try to put that all together. So now let's talk a little bit about some more detailed stuff. When you're making a podcast, does it cost you anything? Do you make any money? And have you ever thought about any sponsorships or sponsoring content from the industry or from anybody else? Yeah, so I mean what we say in the paper and what I would definitely recommend to everybody out there who might be thinking about doing a podcast is please do not do this with the with the thought that it's going to make you money, right? It's not to say that you can't make money on podcasts and there are people out there making millions. But uh, I think it's it's a, not the right motivation. Um, you will probably lose money or maybe break even. Um, I definitely started off uh, losing money because, of course, I was paying for the bandwidth and, and had no, no income whatsoever. The major, major cost is my own time, of course, and I put in quite a lot of time um, that I don't get paid anything for. The uh, And that's fine. I mean, I do it because I really enjoy it. Uh, and it, and thanks to some really generous listeners who have become patrons on Patreon and some who have made donations on um, at the paypal.me slash ACRAC uh, link, um, I am able now to cover the expenses of ACRAC, and that includes what's been an increasing amount of bandwidth requirement because of – again, I don't really understand this very well, but my understanding is that as more and more people access the website, it requires more bandwidth, which costs more money from the underlying um, uh, host uh, service. I think that's right, Dave. I'm sure you know the answer to that. Um, does that, that sound that was, right? That was a passing answer. <laughs> I will give you at least partial credit. All right. I'm glad I didn't fail miserably. Um, anyway, so the costs have gone up over the years, um, but luckily so have the um, patrons, and so I'm able to cover those costs. I certainly uh, don't come close to making any money, but that's okay. Um, and so that's that's kind of uh, you know what my experience has been. I, f- I think if you don't enjoy it, it's not going to be worth it. I think if you go into it thinking I'm going to you know start a podcast, especially something in medicine, and uh, you know then get a bunch of sponsors and make a lot of money, I think you're probably going to be disappointed. Maybe not, but probably. So I think you got to want to do it. You've got to enjoy the process. You've got to enjoy learning, and I certainly do. I learn a ton from the people that I interview and the podcasts that I do. Um, I really enjoy the interaction with listeners uh, via email and via the comments on the website and feeling like, you know, I'm able to help people out there who want to learn. So that satisfaction is absolutely makes it worth it to me. And I really enjoy doing it for that. Um, But I think if you don't have that, um, you're you're going to burn out. And it's interesting looking at the number of podcasts, even just in anesthesia that have started and then stopped, right, have gone for maybe a several months or even a year or two and then stopped. Uh, and my guess is that the people doing them found that they they certainly weren't making money and they maybe just found they didn't have the time or energy to continue doing it. And I completely understand that and don't, don't in any way begrudge them that. But I find it to be a pretty interesting, despite the fact that uh, it's not, it's definitely not a money maker. Now, you asked about sponsorships and I have been approached by a couple of um, companies uh, interested in potentially advertising. And so far, I've said no. Uh, not that I wouldn't ever do it, but I, I just don't know all the ins and outs of that. And I think um, 
you know, I have to just think about it a little more before I decide whether or not that's something I want to do. I certainly don't want to charge for the podcast. I like that it's free. I like that it's accessible to anyone, anywhere. And so I think at some point it's possible I would consider, um, you know, doing some, allowing some advertising on the show. Um, certainly a lot of podcasts out there, uh, Slate and, uh, you know, various other things, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast um, that I listen to, you know, do have advertisements. And I think that's okay. I don't, I, I think you can do it in a way that isn't taking away from the content of what you're doing. I think it just has to be done thoughtfully. And so I want to be cautious uh, about that if I decide to go that route. And some would argue that in medical podcasts, it's really important to be transparent as well. Absolutely. Um, what's been the biggest thing that's surprised you about your experiences thus far with making ACRAC? So without a doubt, the thing that has been the most surprising has been the popularity of it. So as I said, when I when I started it, I thought this is going to be uh, something that you know will be useful for at least some of my residents who have asked for some audio resources. And wouldn't have been surprised if it ended there and would have been fine with that. Uh, and now, uh, at most recent count, we had more than 45,000 listeners worldwide, which is just shocking. Uh, it's not something I ever anticipated or thought would happen. And um, it's it's certainly incredibly humbling uh, and very, very surprising. Um, I'm so glad that it's useful for that many people. It's super fun to get email communication from listeners all over the world. Uh, and uh, I really enjoy it. It's one of the things that keeps me doing it. So whenever you start off with a big project like this, I'm sure that you hit some stumbling blocks along the road. What's the biggest difficulty that you didn't anticipate facing that's happened over the course of the project? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I would say the technical stuff, except I anticipated that. I knew I, I knew I wouldn't be good at that. Um, I, I think the thing I didn't anticipate that, that has become more difficult lately is the need to kind of turn down ideas and requests. So at the beginning, when there were many, many fewer listeners and I didn't get many requests, it kind of felt like anybody who was interested and, you know, had a decent idea, like, sure, let's do it, right? Why not? Um, and now I, it's there's just no way. I couldn't possibly do all of the uh, episode ideas that people ask for or, or offer to do. And it's tough. It's tough to say to somebody, you know, I don't think we can do that. But I feel like it's gotten to the point where I, I have to, either because the idea I don't think is the right fit for the uh, audience that we have, or because I just don't think it's going to be something useful to enough people, um, or because, and this is probably the hardest, if the person making the offer is probably not really enough of an expert to do it. Um, and so I think that's been uh, an unexpected challenge. Obviously, our field is a very dynamic one, and things change, and the pendulum swings for and away from different interventions in different times. Hooray albumin, no albumin, swans are great, swans are killing people. Um, are you worried about some of the content that's out there in your podcast sphere that could potentially become outdated? Are you planning on updating any of the back episodes? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think it's a challenge. One of the nice things about the format where there are show notes and comments is that people can post comments, and so that if something changes, they can post a comment and say, you know, hey, I just listened to this episode, but I also just read this article that suggests this is different, and that might prompt me to either do a kind of typed response that uh, indicates that, yes, there's been a change, or I would definitely consider doing an updated episode where we review the new evidence. And one example that, that I have done was I did an initial episode slash rant about uh, bicarbonate, sodium bicarbonate and lactic acidosis. 
uh, when the Bicar ICU trial came out, a couple of people posted comments saying, you know, does this change your mind? Now, it does not change my mind uh, for, for strict uh, lactic acidosis that is not uh, associated with concomitant uh, renal failure. And so I did a separate episode, a new episode discussing that, the Bicar ICU trial and how that uh, does or does not fit into the ideas there. And I think that's useful. So I do think there's a role at times for updating. I certainly think there's a role for what I'll call kind of ongoing peer review where people can log in and, and go on the website and leave their own thoughts. And that, you know, as long as people are willing to read the comments, they can get that update uh, that other people have, have given. And I do think that there's something to be said for group think in the sense that, uh, and I don't mean that in the bad way of group think, I mean the sense that the more people you have putting in their thoughts – the more uh, useful it's going to be, the more that people are going to be able to learn from each other. And that's a really great thing about the, the system we have with the Internet and the blog postings and the, what we call free open access medical education, the ability for people everywhere to access and comment on this kind of information. Yeah, collective wisdom is really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is going to be asking you to choose which child is your favorite. Uh, but do you, except for this one, have a favorite episode or a favorite guest you've had on your podcast? Yeah, so of course I have to say I've I've enjoyed all of the guests that I've had on. As I said before, I've learned a ton from them. I don't think I could pick a favorite if you made me choose. I guess I would say that I've been really impressed with the few trainees and even students who have come on the show. Uh, mostly because it's not easy to do that. It's not easy to be a let's say a medical student and come on a show knowing that. 40,000 practitioners are going to be listening uh, and, you know, thinking about and even critiquing what you have to say. Uh, and I really do think that the people who have come on have done a fantastic job. I think it goes to show something I believe really strongly, which is that uh, this idea that when someone shows up for their first day of medical school or their first day of residency, this idea that they're somehow a blank slate and that uh, they know nothing and we have to teach them everything uh, is wrong that people come with an incredible amount of experience and diversity and uh, interesting things that they've done. And that's a rich, rich resource for learning for everyone around them, including their quote unquote seniors, their attendings, their teachers. So while I may need to teach my brand new residents quite a lot about anesthesiology, they have lots they can teach me too, based on what they've done in their lives before. And so, for example, Jonathan Curley came on, uh, he's a medical student, but he came on to speak about his experience in the military, something he certainly has a lot of expertise on and something I do not and a lot of our listeners do not. And he talked really movingly about his experiences and how it informed his approach to his learning and how it will, uh, will inform his future uh, training and the kind of mindset he'll take with him. And I think that was really useful for a lot of people out there, uh, despite the fact and despite, of course, is in quotes, that he's just, just, quote, just a medical student. So I think we need to you know use this as a way to remember that expertise comes in many forms. And just because you're a new trainee does not mean you are not an expert at many things. For sure. This has been a really great look back at the last few years of your podcast. But I'm curious, what's next? Where do you see your podcast going in a year or even a month from now? So that's a very interesting thought and one that I am going to be exploring. I'm excited, as I said up front, that we uh, are going to have our first ever ACRAC intern. So Kimia, Kimia Kashkuli is going to be helping me really expand and think about things in a new way. 
Uh, so one of the things that I see for the future is, with Kimia's help, expanding into an ACRAC Twitter feed, Facebook group, maybe even Instagram. Kimia was talking about how we could do Instagram. I, I, I don't know. It's, uh, that's definitely out there for me, but um, maybe we could do that too. Uh, and then other things I think would be a lot of fun. There's, I'm actually in some talks right now to potentially do um, some live ACRAC shows, which I think would be a lot of fun. People have asked about ACRAC swag, so we may be bringing some ACRAC pens to ASA this year. And uh, who knows? It could expand from there into mugs and shirts and, and who knows. So that's something you may see. Um, and then at some point – Is I, it true that you have a ACRAC T-shirt underneath your shirt and tie? Is uh, that- I wish, but no, I do not. Okay. Um, we now, as, as listeners hopefully know, we now have a new logo, and that new logo is one that uh, I think is really great. And so we now can start putting that on things. So you may see me with an ACRAC T-shirt at some point, but not quite yet. Uh, and then, you know, I do think at some point I'd like to look into whether we can provide CMEs. So I've had some attendings out there who listen to ACRAC write in and say, you know, I'm in private practice. I find this really useful. Would love it if I could get CME. Can I? And unfortunately, the answer right now is no, but it is possible. Uh, and so I think going down that route at some point uh, and trying to make uh, – trying to create an option where people could get CME credit for listening and, of course, they'd have to answer some questions and things like that could be really useful. certainly seems like this – Fits the bill for medical education, and that would make sense. Yeah. Um, tell us a little more about you. It seems like the podcast is a lot about medicine, critical care, anesthesia stuff. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What makes you tick? And what kind of stuff do you like to teach? And how do you teach when you're teaching residents and fellows uh, directly at the bedside? What kind of stuff do you like to use? Yeah, so obviously that's a big question. I would say what gets me out of bed, I mean, quite literally, um, my wife, my kids, um, and beyond my family, my residents uh, get me excited to get up in the morning. You know, there's nothing like, and, and those people out there, and Dave, I know you have kids too, you know, there's nothing like having uh, little kids in the house who are just so excited to see you when they first see you in the morning or when you first get home from work. So there's just a joy that I get from my children and, of course, my wonderful wife who's incredibly supportive um, that just uh, – I. I cannot be matched. Uh, and then in terms of, you know, my, my residents are amazing. I'm so, so lucky. And Dave, you know this, we have incredible residents and, uh, that's what, that's what makes me most excited about work. I mean, sure. I love doing anesthesia. I love doing critical care and I love the ways that I can influence patients and their families through those methods, but nothing gets me more excited about work than knowing I get to work with these incredible, incredible residents who we have here. And that's, that makes me excited every day to come to work. So I think that's what gets me up and gets me to work. Um, if you mean uh, quite literally, what's what do I do when I first get out of bed? So why am I getting out of bed? It's actually first to go running. I absolutely have to run. I run every morning. If I don't, I feel terrible. Uh, I I would urge people out there to consider this. Uh, and I know everyone's different, so you may not may not work for you. But I would say that if you don't run. Uh, or you don't run in the morning, you're probably going to hate it at first. Uh, I've been doing it for 20 years, and I did not. it was not easy to get started and get into it. But I'll say that I'm now absolutely hooked. And if I don't run in the morning, I just don't feel good for the rest of the day. I think it's a, an incredible way to wake up and start your day with some energy and an accomplishment. So that I get out of bed to go running. Uh, and then uh, it is also where I do my best thinking. So I will... When I have a speech to give, whether that's a talk I'm giving at Grand Round somewhere or whether that's a speech at someone's wedding, I usually write the vast majority of it in my head while running, and then I come home and write it down. There's just something about that activated blood flow and energy you get when you're exercising. And, of course, it doesn't have to be running. I mean, you could swim. You could bike. You could you know, be on the treadmill at the gym, whatever it may be. 
But I think that the way your brain is activated when you're doing that is pretty unique. And that's also why I think that, you know, the, the learning that can happen while, while you're moving is something that's pretty interesting uh, and potentially pretty exciting. So that is uh, what I do in the morning. Uh, you also asked um, about teaching. So uh, I love to teach things that are a bit controversial, but that I think are really important. So the two examples I'll give are, are hyperoxia, the dangers of hyperoxia. We now know, for example, that uh, people who are having cardiac ischemia, who are having even an active ST elevation MI, do better if they do not get supplemental oxygen, as long as they're not actually hypoxic. But people who are satting above 93, 94% should not get a nasal cannula, should certainly not get high flow face mask, should not get any supplemental oxygen. That's so contradictory to what we were all taught, right? Mona, morphine, oxygen, nitrate, aspirin, everybody needs to get oxygen. And in fact, it still happens the vast majority of the time. People come into the ED with chest pain and the first thing they get is oxygen. Uh, and yet they shouldn't. It, they do worse. And so one of the things I like to teach about, teach residents about, is the why we should not be making people hyperoxic, whether that's with cardiac ischemia or really anything else. And in the ICU, we tend to use oxygen too much. So we, we talk a lot about that. And I think that's fun to teach about because it's a little bit iconoclastic. And then bicarb is another one, as people will know from listening. So the use of sodium bicarbonate in lactic acidosis, it seems like it makes so much sense. The patient is acidotic. Give the bicarb. Then their pH goes up. Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that what we want? But of course, uh, giving bicarb in lactic acidosis, we're pretty sure people do worse. They certainly don't do better. Uh, and so I think that's another thing I really try to urge. So it's fun to teach things like that, that I think, and there's a ton, there's a ton of them out there. Um, but I think it's really, it's fun. So I like to teach stuff like that. Uh, and then in terms of how I like to teach, so you said apart from podcasts, I, I really like a variety of different ways. I like one-on-one -on -one teaching. And one of the really neat things about anesthesia is we get to do a lot of that in the operating room. So one-on-one -on -one teaching is, is really interactive. It's fun. It's not just one way. As I said before, I can learn a lot from our learners. Uh, and then small group learning is fun too, kind of facilitating discussion and seeing what people come up with and how they challenge each other is a lot of fun. And even lecture I do enjoy. I find that to be a particular challenge because it's a really difficult form to do well and to keep people engaged with. Um, but because of that, uh, because it's not such a great medium, I think there's the potential for really a lot of gratification if you can do it well. If you can give a lecture to a large group of people and they stay awake and maybe they even laugh a little bit and they learn uh, and they feel like they came away with some stuff they're going to remember, that's a real success in a lecture. Uh, and so I find that to be a fun challenge as well. All right. I think that's all I've got. Thank you so much for letting me play host. This has been a lot of fun. Dave, I thought you were a fantastic host. Thanks for uh, interviewing me. And so let's now do our random recommendations, the new segment of ACRAC where – uh, the guest, which I guess is me today, and the host, which is you, uh, but we both will recommend something, anything that uh, we are interested in or think that any of the listeners might be interested in. Um, what do you think? What's on your mind? What would you like to randomly recommend? Uh, last month, I was given a copy of a book called When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon by a transplant surgeon named Joshua Mesrich. And it was a book that was 
part memoir about his life and his evolution as a transplant surgeon and part history of the field of transplant surgery from Tom Starzl and experimental transplants all the way through to the present and UNOS allocation and so which we've we've talked about on this podcast before um and I found it to be a fascinating historical approach and also a personal reflection on what it's like to be in such an evolving field with some really sick patients. So I thought it was a great read. It is on Amazon, and I do not get a commission. Nice. That sounds amazing. I will definitely check it out. Um, And my recommendation is uh, for a podcast. It's Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. It's called Revisionist History. If you haven't listened to it, there's three seasons. He's currently in the third. I will say the first two seasons were a little hit or miss. I thought there were some fantastic episodes, uh, certainly in the first season. The second season I thought was a little more hit or miss or maybe a little more miss than hit. There were some good episodes, but some also ones that I thought were a little less exciting. But this current third third season, I will say, is fantastic, especially he's in the middle of a three-part kind of mini-series within the the season uh, on casuistry. Now, I had no idea what that was. Casuistry is the Jesuit way of approaching a problem. And what it involves is descending into the particulars. Or in other words, instead of trying to put a blanket policy on something and say, oh, this fits in this policy, therefore we do it this way, the casuistry is the idea that you have to take each situation as a unique individual situation. You have to examine the particulars that make that situation unique and then decide how to deal with it. And so he gives some really interesting examples. He goes all the way back in the first one to how this evolved from St. Ignatius and the Jesuits. And by the way, I am not Catholic, but I think this is a really interesting um, approach to just thinking about history. And then to look at some of the examples and ways that it's been used in history and the ways it's used, or he, he, Malcolm Gladwell himself uses it now to examine some things. So the uh, podcast is called Revisionist History. Uh, he goes back and tries to examine things that uh, have, he says, either been overlooked or misunderstood in our history, and then these past few have been using this technique of casuistry, the type of thinking to examine some of those things. So check it out. Really interesting revisionist history. Uh, I get nothing from that uh, at all, but you can find it on uh, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. All right. That was a lot of fun for me. I hope people out there found it useful as well. Um, to see me in the in the uh, guest chair. Uh, all right. Go to the website, com. Let us know what you thought. Leave a comment. You can comment on this or, of course, any of the other shows on the website. Everybody can learn from what you have to say. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps other people find the show. Even if you've already left a comment, you can leave another one, and it still counts. All right. If you are interested in being a supporter of the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. And, of course, you can also leave a donation anytime you want by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. All right. Big, big thanks, as always, to those who are already patrons and have already made donations and of course our original ACRAC music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo big thanks to him check out his website at studymusicproject.com okay that is it for today for the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Dave Berman thanks for listening remember what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued 